Thank you, Sarah. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you um, for this morning, the chance to gather on the truth of the gospel. We have, uh, we have sung the truth that you alone are worthy of our worship. You alone are worthy of our praise. And we have sung of our, of our deep need for you, that we, as we recognize your glory and your goodness, we recognize our need and we confess those sins before you. And we see, Lord, how you provide, how you provide with your promises of fulfillment of Jesus and that, as we sang, that you are resurrecting us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we sing those words today and as we uh, gather around the truth of the gospel, that, um, that we might hear what you have to say to us today from your word. We ask that we would have eyes to see and ears open to hear from you as you reveal yourself to us through your word. Would you take just a moment to ask the Lord to speak um, to you from his word today? Lord, thanks for your faithfulness to speak. We want to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Again, it is great to be together and uh, great to have you guys uh, worshiping with us uh, today. It is just a joy uh, to worship um, the Lord with one another. And high schoolers, we're really glad you guys are in here with us as well on that first Sunday of the month. And you kind of get that um, experience of being with us and are really grateful that y'all are here with us as well. Uh, well, as a church, the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through, um, kind of, we took kind of a break and just said, let's talk through discipleship. What, what are the priorities of it? What it looks like to be a follower of Jesus? And then and then last week, we talked about the posture of a disciple, which is to serve. Uh, the priorities, meaning that everything is arranged around him. We lay everything down. Uh, and then the, the posture is a posture of humility and of serving. And as we walked this through these last two weeks, uh, we're coming back to what we typically do as a church. And if you're new with us, this is kind of how what we typically do is we walk through books of the Bible. Uh, we walked through Romans last year. We spent the summer in Hebrews 11 talking about faith what does it look like to trust God in all things? Uh, and today we're starting a new series in the book of Nehemiah, which is in the Old Testament, kind of in between sort of the, the Psalms and, the, and Genesis. And I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn there. Uh, we'll be looking at Nehemiah for the next number of weeks uh, throughout this fall as we want to understand what God says. And the reason we study books of the Bible is we, we believe there is, there is truth in the whole counsel of God. We want to understand that. We want to uh, submit ourselves to the word and to live that way. And so uh, today we open up Nehemiah. And as you heard, as Sarah read, uh, we, we hear that it happened in the month of Chislev, the 20th year. I don't know about you, but I love Chislev. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite months. Um, it's kind of cool outside. We, we wear our fall colors. Uh, if you're into this, it's like all pumpkin everything. Uh, it's Thanksgiving. It's the dog show. You know, it's football. It's, it's November-ish. Uh, and so Chislev in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. And at least for me, for my, for my opinion, the 20th year is my favorite year of Artaxerxes' reign. Um, what is this about? We read this and we go, ah, we blow right by it. The Chislev, month of Chislev, the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. This is a time and space. And this is a historical moment that God is interjecting into the time and place in this time about November, around roughly 444 BC. And it's 
a person. It's Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Again, we go, I don't know who that is. I don't know anything about Hakaliah, and we just kind of keep reading. But this is, again, set in a time and place. And often, most often, actually, the way God speaks to us in his word is through stories. It's through God interjecting with real people in real times, in a real historical moment, with a actual real God and seeing what God is doing in that. And so for us, it's helpful for us to recognize that, yes, sometimes God speaks very clear decrees, and sometimes we know exactly what he's telling us, and sometimes we wish that maybe we could wake up every morning and there would be a decree in the clouds that would say, do this today with your name on it. But the reality is, oftentimes the way God shows us who he is and what he's about is through stories. And so when we pick up Nehemiah right from the get-go, we're in the middle of a really big story. We're picking up in the middle of what God has been doing in creating and forming a people that are going to follow him and to be his people. And we also recognize that after that, there, there's more to this story too. Of course, we know because of Christ's come, as we've just sung, that, that Christ has come to fulfill all things. And so we find ourselves in Nehemiah in this story and in the middle of the story. And what I want us to see, one of the things I want us to see throughout this series is that we're going to get this kind of micro-macro moment with the Nehemiah. We're going to see this micro picture of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah and Chislev in the 20th year. Very specific person, very specific time, very specific time in history. But we're also going to see God's big, redemptive, macro story of what he has always been about. And as we see that, I I want us to remember that we ourselves are in the middle of God's redemptive history, that we ourselves are in a time where, yes, Christ has come. And if we are believers in Jesus, we are made new in him and we follow him, but we still long and wait for the final restoration of all things. And we find ourselves where we are. And yet, in the same way God's going to use Nehemiah, in his macro story, I believe he wants to use us as well in that story. And so let's figure out where we're coming from here. Where, how did we get here? Um, and if you're a history buff, uh, today's your day. We're going to talk about how this fits in the context of the Old Testament. And we have to remember all the way back to the beginning, the first five books of the Old Testament are, are pointing out to us that there is a holy and perfect God who is loving And what he's doing in those first five books in a very quick way is, in a quick summary, is he's preparing a people. He's forming a people who are called to also be holy and also called to be loving. And so this people that God has been forming and he's made promises to these people and he fulfills them over and over and over again to this people that he is forming who are meant to be a reflection to God. If you remember the promise, God says, I'm calling you, I'm blessing you as a people to be a blessing to every other nation. So the people around would look up and say, oh, that's the people of God. What they do, the way they're set apart, the way God allows for flourishing in them, the way they worship him, I want to be a part of that. And every other nation that surrounds Israel was supposed to say, I want that. This was the plan. And so there was this promise after promise after promise that it was this blessing. It was this uh, promise that one day from their people would come the ultimate Messiah. But there was also this promise of a land, of a land, of a place. 
to say this is where we will be the distinct people of God. In this place and in the ancient world, it was the middle of everything. This distinct people in this distinct land with a distinct worship of God. And so you remember as the story goes on, Joshua brings the people in. And if you're reading the story, you're like, finally, finally, we are going into the promised land, this land that God has promised and has continued to say, this is where I have you. This is where I want you to be this distinct people in this distinct land with a distinct worship of God. And, uh, and yet as they get in soon after we get into the period of the judges, which is the Bible calls it where everyone just does what's right in their own eyes. Or we might say sort of in our common vernacular, if everyone just follows their heart. Right? That's what the judges look like, and it's a disaster. And then there's this time where the people say, we want a king, because everyone else has a king. Uh, and God says, I'm your king. And he says, that's, that, that's nice and all, but we want a king. And so God gives them a king. And then we move forward, and we have David and his faithfulness as he faithfully followed God. He's a man after God's own heart. And the people of God are saying, yes, we want to follow him. And they're, they're flourishing as the people of God. But then after David, king after king after king who does not follow God. And this, this nation, this people divides into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, Israel. The southern kingdom, Judah. And the southern kingdom, Judah, is where Jerusalem is. And because they're divided, because they're not following God, they're vulnerable to attack. And in 722 BC, remember I said, if you're a history buff, this is your, your day. 722 BC, Assyria comes in and they'd sack the northern kingdom, Israel. And in 586 BC, Babylon comes in and destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, destroys the walls, and then deports kind of the best and the brightest from the time back to Babylon to say, if we can just sort of work out this distinction, you know, this distinct people, this distinct faith, this thing, who you are, we've taken you out of the land, then we'll just have really great Babylonian citizens. And before long, a couple of generations, no one will even know that this nation even existed. And so that's where the people of God are. And they're in what's called exile. And it's a dark, dark time. They've had three brutal regimes, Assyrians, the Babylonians, and now it has moved to the Persians. And the Persians, as they take, as they take control, Cyrus, he gives a little favor to the Jews. He says, I've inherited these people. I don't really know what to do with them. Uh, they're a distinct people. They come from a distinct land. They have a distinct faith in God. He's like, but I will let them go back to their land. And I'll still rule them, but I'll let them go back to their land and they can rebuild the temple. And so Zerubbabel goes back to the land and starts to rebuild the temple. In 80 years, nothing really happens. And then, they, and then he allows Ezra to go back. And Ezra comes back and says, I'm going to br- bring back the law. I'm going to bring back uh, all the worship things that go with what it looks like to be the people of God. The law was said, here's how you're holy. Here's how you're loving. Here's how you're set apart. And so we have Zerubbabel, we have Ezra. And then 14 years later, in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, we have Nehemiah. This third return of the people of God back to their land back to their distinct land. And his responsibility is to build a wall. And so we kind of have Zerubbabel who's come to bring the temple, the presence of God, the symbol of what it means that God is with them. And we have Ezra who's come to bring the law to say, this is what it means to follow God. And then Nehemiah has come to rework the city, to build the wall around the city, to build it back to what it's needed. And so as we, be, as we pick up this story, Nehemiah is in Susa. He is in Persia. And he hears what's going on. His brother had been in Judah and he hears about it. Look at verse three. And they said to me, 
the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So even though Zerubbabel has gone back and the temple's there, even though Ezra has gone back and he's brought the law, the report says that it is not the flourishing people of God that they believe they're supposed to be and they believe God has called them to be. And so specifically the walls and the gates were a pile of rubble. Now, a wall is a security problem. If you have no wall in an ancient city, then you are vulnerable to attack at any given point. And so the wall is a security problem. The gates are even bigger than that. The gates is where everything happens. It's where all the commerce happens. It's actually where the judges would sit and judge righteously in the land. So the center of the city is all in rubble. So yes, they have the temple. Yes, they're trying to bring back the law, but the city's a mess. And so we kind of go, well, is this just a political issue? Do they just need to kind of get Homeland Security and kind of figure it all out? Is that the issue? It's far more than that. Because what we're going to see, I think, as we walk through this book is that this broken wall and this city in rubble is actually a symbol of the people's hearts. The destruction after they've not followed God is what has come because of that. And so this broken wall in this city, it's more than just a political issue. It's an identity problem. Again, you go back to the people of God. They were set apart to have a distinct worship of God, to have a distinct law as they trusted in him, to be distinct people in a distinct land. And so all of a sudden you look back and go, we believe that God is our refuge. He is our security, but we have no walls. And and it says they were a shame or disgrace, a disgrace to themselves and a disgrace to those around them. All the other nations who were supposed to be like, maybe we should worship God are going, that's what it looks like? I don't think so. And what, what caused them to get there? Now, again, in this history, as they're getting there, what is it that caused them to get there? Now, if you're the Old Testament, we went through the history, but if you, most of the Old Testament is prophets. And as you read the prophets, the prophets over and over and over again, they say, return to God. God is not done with you. Return to God. You can repent. You can turn to him. And over and over again, what the prophets speak about is the sin that caused them to go into exile in three categories. Idolatry, which is worshiping, trusting anything else besides God. And they were mixing all that up with pagan gods and it was just kind of who they were. Secondly, immorality. And this time, primarily it was sexual immorality. It was breaking the laws that God had given to set them apart. And third, injustice. They had ceased caring about what God cared about. They got over and over again. The prophet says, God cares about the poor and the marginalized and they were not doing it. And the prophets kept bringing it up, idolatry, immorality, injustice. You are not following me. And the prophet said, return to God. Return to God. That was their mantra. But as the people gave in to sin, that's when they go into exile. And he made their city like their heart. Destruction, rubble. Their heart that was connected and had lived under the protection of God for so long, now there's no walls. There's no protection. Their heart that says, oh, you know what? We really, we'll worship you, God, but we really want to worship something else. We really want to worship a different idol. We want a new king, a different king. And then the discipline of the Lord says, you have a new king, but he's in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, or in Persia. This idolatry, this immorality, and this injustice led to them as the people of God to be a disgrace. 
And so that's where they are. And so Nehemiah hears this. Notice his response, verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Why? Because he knows why they're there. He understands that it is because of the sin of the people that they have not returned to God. They have not followed him. That this is why, this is where they are. That immorality, idolatry, injustice has led them to this place of rubble. As one pastor said, sin will leave you nothing but trouble and rubble. Right? Sounds good. But it's true. If the city is a reflection of their hearts, then that's where it led them. And I, I think about his response here, and I wonder how often our response matches this. Because his first response is to mourn. Now remember, he's miles away. He's in the palace. He is miles away from this, what this situation is. And even decades away from kind of how they got here. But when he hears what is happening for the people of God in this distinct land, he mourns. And mourning is an appropriate response for sin. Mourning for, for sin that is done to us. Mourning for, for sin that has caused just systems of just junk that we live in. But also mourning for our own sin. For the ways in which our hearts go towards idolatry, towards immorality, and towards injustice. To where we, we neglect the things of God. Mourning is the appropriate response. And you see what? Nehemiah recognizes immediately is he, he recognizes the problem here. It's not a construction problem. It's a spiritual problem. And I think sometimes we don't necessarily um, uh, give ourselves over to letting the Lord recover us and revive us from maybe that kind of scorched part of ourselves because we get complacent. We get complacent and go, well, that's just over there or that's just a little thing. That's not a big deal. And we can just sit back in complacency and not recognize here, this is a major problem. And we need to mourn the sins in our own heart and the sins in our world. And so I, I want us to notice, he doesn't just wallow in this realization. I want us to notice what he does. He takes this to the Lord. He prioritizes the Lord in the midst of this trouble. In the midst of what's happening here, he immediately takes this to the Lord. And, and I was thinking about this. When we find out there's a problem and what do we do? Oh, we have a problem. Oh boy. We better fix, we, we got to fix it. You know, in fact, I, I love this. When he finds out there's a problem, he sits down, he prays, he fasts, and he mourns. And so often we do the opposite of that when we recognize there's a problem. We stand up, we're ready to fix the problem. We might eat even more. Uh, we rage. He sits down, he prays, he fasts, and he mourns. Mourning is this hatred of sin. Fasting is this intentional way of saying, uh, of seeking the Lord. Saying, I have no good besides you, Lord. It, it, even to feed myself in this moment, I'm gonna fast as a recognition that what I absolutely need more than anything else is not the next meal, but I need the Lord. We hunger for him. And when we have a problem, there might even be a problem like right now, right front and center. As we walk in today, what do we do with that problem? Do we take it to the Lord? 
Do we follow Nehemiah's example of just prioritizing where, whose problem is this? The Lord is the one who can solve it. The, the Lord is, he knows the issues and we bring it to him. And he prays for four months before the next thing happens in chapter two. And we get to see his prayer here. This is a beautiful prayer. And I want to walk through it. Uh, it's been talked about many, many times um, in history of, of this as a model, much like the Lord's Prayer for prayer for us. We get to see his heart for prayer, but we also get to see how he prays. And there's something I, I think is really powerful in this, and I want to look at it. Look at verse 5. This is what he said. He said, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice who he's praying to. It's very clear who he's praying to. This is not a like fingers crossed, like God, if you're up there, I really need your help here. Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Every time you see Lord in all caps, he is talking about God who is faithful to keep his covenant and who is abounding in steadfast love. That's where he starts. He goes to the true God of the universe. And in that one sentence, what he's saying is, God, you have been faithful to David, to Moses, to Abraham. You are faithful and you, have full, and you are full of steadfast love. You are holy and you are loving. And he goes to God. He's submitting to the covenant-keeping God. Again, similar to Jesus' prayer, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Worship his name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's this aligning with who God is and his purposes. This is how Nehemiah starts. And what a great opportunity to think about how to pray, even in many ways, how we start our worship service with this adoration. But again, not just adoration in, oh, well, let's just pray. You're awesome, you're amazing, but truthful adoration. This is who you are, God. I know who you are. I know your character and I'm gonna adore you in truth. So this truthful adoration is how he starts. And then notice what he does next, verse six. He confesses sin. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I, and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Now, notice what he does here. In the same way that we start our service with truthful adoration and then we go into a confession of sin, he, in this prayer, he confesses. He recognizes the way in which his people and he himself have fallen short. He confesses idolatry, immorality, injustice, all the ways that we've run away from God. There's this confession here. And remember, this is 150 years before when all of this happened. He could have easily been like, yeah, those guys, man, you know, they were horrible. But he confesses sin in solidarity with his people. Confession, that word confession just means to say the same thing. It means to, to agree with God about our sin. That when we sin and we confess it, God says that sin and we agree with God and we confess it. First John says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The opposite of confession is to cover. We hide and we cover. And yet what we miss in that is that Jesus, because we know the gospel, Jesus has come to cover our sin with his blood. 
But when we cover it, we're trying to hold on to it instead of just confessing it and letting Jesus cover it. And for some of us, we might be like, man, I feel a little scorched inside. I feel like the walls are kind of down. And this is where we start. Truthful adoration of who God is and confession of sin, a recognition that we have a tendency to run away from God. He not only confesses the community's sin, but he confesses his own sin. I am my father's house. This reminds me of Isaiah when he comes before God and he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. This this just recognition of his own complacency, of his own immorality, of his own injustice and his own idolatry. And then as he's praying, if truthful adoration, confession of sin. And then I love this. Um, He claims God's promises. Keep going with me. Look at verse eight. Remember, he says to God, as if God forgets, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's already happened. Uh, But if you return to me, the same mantra of the prophets, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost part of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. What does he do? He quotes God to God. He says, God, I'm going to tell you the promises that you've made. Now, does God need, did God forget? No. He forgets. We forget. And so when we're praying, we have this this truthful adoration, this confession of sin, but this recognition that that we can claim God's promises. Uh, You know, it's never presumptuous to claim the biblical promises of God. Those are from him. And so we tell God that. In our prayer, we we recognize, as we've just sung, that God has been faithful to send a high priest who died in our place. That as, As Isaiah says, that our names are graven on his hand. This is the promise. That one with himself, we cannot die. We claim these promises. We claim that that God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Even though we look ahead at the future and go, ooh, I don't know if he'll be with me in that. We claim the promise that uh, he will forgive our sin. We go, well, you can't forgive my stuff. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We claim the promises of God. This prayer is so beautiful. You see this so often in the scriptures where he just repeats back what God has said because God is faithful to his promise and he's abounding in steadfast love. And then uh, he makes his request. Looking at truthful adoration, confession of sin, claiming God's promises, quoting God to God. And then he makes his petition in verse 10. There are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, what is he praying for? He's bringing his petition to God, but his prayer, his request is that he would have an opportunity to play a role in God's big story. All of these things that he's remembering that God is faithful to do, that he will be faithful to build, uh, to, uh, build up a people and, and to continue to be faithful to those people. He says, I want to play a role in that. He says, give me success, grant me success as your servant so that I may go forward and play a role in that. It reminds me again of Isaiah where he says, here I am, send me. Here I am. I want to be a part of what God is doing in his grand redemptive plan. And then we get this little, I think it's like a cliffhanger. 
Now I was cupbearer to the king. It's not part of his prayer. Uh, I remember preaching Esther one time and somebody said, man, you left me on a cliffhanger. I'm not going to be here next week. I gotta, how am I going to know what's going to happen? I said, you can read the rest of Esther, you know? So you can read ahead if you want, but there's like this cliffhanger. There's something about who Nehemiah is as the cupbearer to the king that is going to impact his prayer. It's going to impact how God might use him in the grand, the macro, redemptive purposes of God. And we'll look at that next week. There's your cliffhanger. But as we start this book, I, I want to make a few observations. First, I, I just want to see how God is so faithful in the micro story. All right, it's Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, Chislev, the 20th year, whatever. We don't know how, what that means. But it, but it is an actual person in an actual time, in actual history, encountering an actual God who is going to be used for redemptive purposes. And I mean, just little things like his brother happened to be in Judah. And his brother who was in Judah has come up to Susa to tell him what's going on at that time. And this time, Jerusalem needs a leader. Someone who, notice, he's not a priest. He's not a cleric. They need someone who can lead the people to move forward to build the walls. And in this time where they need a leader, Nehemiah says, I'm hearing this news and I've got to pray. Lord, give me success in this that I might be a part of your redemptive purposes. And he also just happens to be someone who talks to the king every single day as the cupbearer of the king. I don't want to miss that God is working in all of our stories. And I think he is working to accomplish his redemptive purposes. And we go, well, no, not, not me. I'm not Nehemiah. I'm not a part of this big grand plan that God's doing. I believe he is. I believe God's working in you. The places where you are, the schools where you go, the places where you work, the neighborhoods where you live, the places where you are, that God is, is calling us to play a role in his redemptive purposes. And I don't want us to miss what God's doing in that. How easy would it be Nehemiah to go, well, it just happened to me, my brother came up. I happen to be the cupbearer. They happen to need a leader. Well, I'm going to step back. God's doing something. And it could be very specific. You might go, I know exactly what it is. You know, I, I have a neighbor, I, I have a family member. I know exactly what it is that God's calling me to be. It could be that, that God's calling you, as you know, um, next week we launch a church plant, East Lake Fellowship. It could be that God's calling you, on the, if you live on the east side of the lake, to say, let's go do this. Let's go be a part of this new work that's trying to reach new people, a part of a redemptive plan uh, that God is doing. It starts next Sunday evening. And we'll have a lunch here next Sunday to celebrate that and also the five-year celebration of Lakewood Fellowship, the church we planted five years ago. That being a part, whatever God's calling us to do, to be a part of the redemptive plans. But I believe he's orchestrating all things for his work in your life. He's telling a story through each one of us. And, and Nehemiah is written in first person for the most part. It's like his journal. And, and I think about this, I'm like, well, what if like someone got your journal? Maybe you journal, maybe you don't. But if someone got your journal and read it, we'd be like, oh, that's kind of embarrassing. Uh, the things we wrote in our journal. But here's what we would actually see. Maybe some blips where, oh, okay, well, that was kind of weird. But here's what we would actually see. God's faithfulness. I can tell you that. God's faithfulness over months, over years, over decades to see what he's doing in our lives. And if we took that moment and just said, let's look at all of this, what we would see is that he is working in you and wants to work through you. Secondly, I, I don't want to miss, uh, we've already highlighted, but I don't want to miss this, that Nehemiah prays. He seeks the Lord. I mean, it, it is very, it's his first response 
is to seek the Lord, is to pray. He could have easily said, that's, uh, that's kind of far away. I'm in the palace. I'm good. No, he engages with it. He prays. He confesses. He confesses his sin. He trusts. He's dependent upon God. And then lastly for today, as we look at this book, I, I don't want to miss, there's this little word in verse three. He says, tell me about the remnant. Remnant's a big biblical word. The idea of remnant is that God has prepared a people for himself. That even in the midst of the city being in rubble, there's no gates, there's no walls, they're vulnerable to attack. Even in the midst of like, man, things are not going well. God has prepared a remnant. A people who are faithful to God. And as much as we can look around and go, man, things are a mess right now. It's all a mess and things are falling apart. And there's some truth in that. There's always been truth in that. But God is always providing and preparing and and, uh, and, and, uh, encouraging a remnant, a people of God who will be faithful in the time in which they live. Nehemiah and those that are in Jerusalem. That God is faithful to his macro plan. He he has not leave the people of God. He will be faithful. He is a God full of steadfast love. And we know this even more. Because we have the benefit that Nehemiah didn't have, that we live on this side of Jesus. That Jesus, who, who came perfectly God, fully God, fully man, he comes and he becomes Israel. He, he does what Israel couldn't do. Israel was supposed to be this holy nation that, that showed the love, that pointed people to God. And Jesus comes and he's perfect. He's holy. And his love is displayed primarily in the death on the cross for you and for me. He shows to say, I'm going to go do this thing that you did not deserve and you couldn't do for yourself in order to create a people, a remnant, a church, the people of God who would follow him in this season. And so as we prepare our hearts for communion, I I want us just to focus our hearts on Christ, that he has come to do this for us, that he is the faithful one. And his faithfulness has allowed us to be called the people of God. We are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. And we have a hope, an ultimate land, if you will, a new heavens and a new earth where we will be with him forever. This is where we find ourselves in the story. He saved us. We did not deserve it by his grace. And he's going to come to take us home. In the meantime, we want to be faithful people of God. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you for uh, this book of the Bible. We know our temptation to, to fly by people and names and dates that we just don't really understand. And seemingly a culture that is just so different than ours that we don't really understand. And yet we recognize as we look at their culture and the ways in which idolatry and immorality and injustice have caused people to run away from God. We see that in ourselves as well. And so, Lord, our desire is to truthfully adore you, to know who you are with full clarity that you are a God who is steadfast and faithful and that you are abounding in loving kindness. And we confess before you, Lord, our our sins, our brokenness. You know, and as we prepare our hearts for communion, this is a great time to to maybe bring those things to the Lord, maybe that complacency, that that thing that's keeping you from running towards him, to confess that, knowing that he is faithful and just, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
and then walking forward into the promises that we have in God that you have sent your son, Jesus. And that his broken body and his blood shed on the cross is what has made us a people. May we live into that promise. May we know it. May we uh, saturate ourselves into the promises of God because of what you've done for us. And Lord, may we long to play a redemptive role wherever you've put us, like Nehemiah, to be faithful, to seek you, to seek what you would have us do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.